All right, take your Bibles this morning and make your way to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the last four verses. I know, the last four verses. I've titled this sermon, uh, The Benediction's Blessing. The benediction, what's a benediction? We don't use that word a lot. Yeah, it's a blessing that comes at the end, right? Just like church, we have a benediction and we sing the doxology. It's, it's the blessing that comes at the end. And hey, I th- you know what I fear? We, I know what I think we do. I think we get to the end of these epistles and these, these letters, and we just rush through the ending. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you ever, would you, would you ever read a, a really engrossing novel? I'm not a, self-admittedly, I'm not a big novel reader. Most of my reading is... Uh, theology books, of course, but sometimes I'll read a novel, and a friend of mine was bragging up this book. He, he's a big novel reader. Oh, this was so good. I said, okay, I'm going to have to read this, and I will say the writing was amazing. The, the writer herself was a very gifted writer, so it was a joy to read. Now, it was kind of a, a, a little bit of a twisty book at the end. Do you think I would read that whole thing and invest it in, I don't know, about eight hours of reading? And get to the last page and say, well, you know what? I pretty much got the gist of the book. I'm not going to bother reading the end. Do we do that? Do you do that with a movie? You get to the end of a whodunit and say, ah, you know what? I've got enough. I got the gist of the movie. I'm just going to turn it off. No, you can't wait. Matter of fact, if you're like me, when I was younger, I would read the last chapter of a book first and decide if I wanted to read the rest of it then. <laughs> right? I'd read the ending first. But uh, we don't do that in any other area, and yet I fear we do that when it comes to God's Word. And uh, I have to admit, I haven't always been sad to finish a series going through the Bible. I'll give you an example. First John. First John wore me out. And if I had had it to do all over again, I would do First John very differently. Because he says the same three things, three different ways, and I would put them all together and make that series different. Um, I, I can think of another one. One of the first ones I ever did was Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Anybody here remember Ephesians? Yeah, six year, or three years for six chapters. And I think everybody was thrilled to get to the end of that letter, <laughs> right? All of us were. But I don't feel that way about this one. Number one, I think my pacing has improved a little bit over the years. I've learned a few things. But, but this one makes me a little bit sad to see it end. Uh, I understand why this church was Paul's favorite church. And um, this has certainly been one of my favorite epistles or letters to go through. Let me remind you a little bit about where we've been, our big outline is that we see as Paul opens this epistle of joy, where is he, church? Where is the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter? He's in prison. He's, he's literally chained to a Roman centurion, a guard, under house arrest. Um, it is called the epistle of joy. I've called the whole series Ode to Joy. Uh, it, and it's crazy. Joy from jail. Who's happy when you're in jail? It's not about happiness, though, because we learned that joy is not circumstance dependent it's truth dependent and there was enough truth to cause Paul to be filled with joy and to share that joy with these Philippian believers in chapter 1 we saw that that 
uh, if we're going to have joy, we need to have a single mind. Chapter 1, verse 21, when Paul says that famous uh, word. By the way, so many um, memorized verses of Scripture come from Philippians. And this is, this is one of them. Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. So we see that Paul had a single mind, and, a, and we must be single-minded if we're going to have any expectation of joy in the Christian life. Then we saw the submissive mind in chapter 2 and verse 5. Uh, a single mind, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But then we saw a submissive mind when Paul says, let this mind be in you. Allow, uh, embrace this same mind that Jesus had. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? And what was it? He, he's God, and he, he, he gives it all up and comes to live, not, not just as a man, but as what kind of a man? A servant, the humblest of us all. So we must have this submissive mind. Then in chapter 3, we see the spiritual mind. The spiritual mind in chapter 3. We see that in verse 15. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, All right? So we have this, this spiritual mind as we grow in the Lord. And well, how many of you know a spiritual mind makes for joy, amen? And then in this chapter 4, we have the secure mind, the secure mind. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 7. When he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your what? Minds through Christ Jesus. Yet, and last week, we, we, we got through from 14 through 19, and I just want to remind you briefly about verse 19, where Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's where we ended last week, and today we'll go from 20 to 23. But let me, I came across this in a commentary this week. I thought it was so good I wanted to share it with you. And this is from... Um, Williams' student commentary. He says that Philippians 4.19 is a note drawn upon the bank of faith. I like that. We're, um, and here's what he says. My God is the name of the banker. Isn't that true? I think that's ahead. I skipped the verses in there, Lisa. If you'll look down, I think that comes up on the screen. If you'll go past the text, then we'll go back and read that. My God, that's the name of the banker, shall supply, what is that? That's the promise to pay, right? All your need. How much of your need, church? All your need. That's the value of the note. So my God is the name of the banker, shall supply, is the promise to pay. All your need, that's the value of this note, right? And I love how he, how he describes that. The next phrase, according to his riches, that's the capital in the bank. That's how much the bank has. In glory, that's the address of the bank, right? Isn't that good, right? In heaven, by Christ Jesus, that's a signature at the foot without which the note is worthless. Isn't that true? The signature at the foot without which the note is worthless. He was on to say this, and I thought it was so helpful. He says, have you ever heard the false statement, God helps those who help themselves? By the way, that's not in the scripture. And here's what he says in conclusion of this, little, this great verse. He said, the real truth is brought out in this verse. God helps those who cannot help themselves. 
right? Isn't that true? And until we come to the point that we realize we are helpless, God cannot help us. What a beautiful truth that is to rely on. If you've got your Bibles open, I'm going to begin reading in verse number um, 15, just to give us a little bit of context. And then I just want to walk through these last four verses with you together and pull some things literally right out of the verse and cause us to pause and think what an appropriate end to these beautiful, um, this beautiful letter that Paul writes to his favorite church. Verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, <clears throat> you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. See, Apostle Paul knew that Generous kingdom giving did more for the giver than it does for the receiver, right? And Paul is trying to assure them that he is content no matter what. So he wasn't seeking the gift, no. He was seeking the fruit that would come and abound to their account spiritually. That's what he was excited about. Indeed, this is where he said, I did get your gift, verse 18. Indeed, I have all, the whole gift, and I abound. You guys gave me uh, over what I needed. I am full, and I ha haven't received from Epaphroditus, that was their messenger, the thing sent from you. And he says, here's how, God, here's how God looks at your kingdom generosity. He said, it is a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, and notice this, well-pleasing to God. God likes the smell of that. Verse 19, we just talked about that. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 20 is where we're going to start today. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Most likely... Beginning in verse 20, Paul probably took the quill from his scribe. Paul did not write his letters. We know that he had a, uh, an eye issue and, and that caused his eyes to weep, his vision to be blurred. And when he did write, um, he wrote in pretty large letters because he couldn't see them. And so he would often take at the end of his letters and he would write the last part of it, the, the ending greeting. Now, most of the time in our letters, we begin with the greeting, and Paul does that as well. We end our letters with something like sincerely, right? Uh, I try to end my communications. Does anybody write letters anymore? We write emails and texts, right? And, um, apparently today, parents, if you'd like to know, you had to get a degree in emojis. We don't even write anymore. We send pictures, right? 
<laughs> and you got you, you gotta understand what all these pictures mean. If you're grandparents and got grandkids, you're gonna get these weird pictures. Apparently they all mean something. And you put it together and it's supposed to say, I can't imagine, I can't imagine in 300 years or 400 years the uh, archeologists that are gonna come and find what we did and how they're gonna explain it. Um, but they will somehow. But we, we need to get back. I, I love that about my wife's dad is he, he is a great letter writer. And he still does. Every time I do anything, even the slightest thing, cook him a meal or, or send him a book, as, as I can be assured that in two or three days in the mail, it's going to come a handwritten letter. Um, that's just how he is. He's a great letter writer. It's a good skill to have. We usually just end it with sincerely. I try to end mine. I totally stole it from the Apostle Paul. I end mine with grace and peace, right? But typical in the first century, they would also end with a greeting, uh, especially if he was writing, in this case, on a missionary trip, or not a missionary trip, but he had people with him. And he did. He had, he had uh, others that were Epaphroditus was with him. He was getting ready to leave. Timothy was there. Um, we know that there's a possibility that Dr. Luke was there with Paul. So the people around him, you would end and mention those folks, say, hey, we're all, we all send you greetings. But he does even more than that. So this last part of the letter looked very different physically than the first part because that was kind of how Paul signed his letter. You know, you can see how messy this is. And with what he even says in another one of his epistles, with what great letters I write, big letters, because he couldn't see. So he would imagine this last part written in his own handwriting. He said, I need to do this last part myself. And he, here's what he says. And I want you to notice in your outline, there's outlines back there. Hopefully you got one on the way in. First of all, I just want you to look at the glory of verse number 20. It says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory. What is that word? When you hear that word glory, what do you think of? Huh? Praise. Praise. What else? Honor. How do we use, do we use that word in our culture today, really? Not, not too much. I think maybe athletics a little bit. Um, you know, uh, Georgia won a national title last year, right? And we say, you know, we say they bask in the glory of, of being the best team in college football. What do we mean when we say they're basking in that glory of being the best? Being honored. Yeah, it's like. Yes, yeah, like, so that word in Greek is doxa, D-O-X-A, from which we get our word doxology. That's what we sing at the end of every service, doxology, doxa, and it literally means weighty. Um, you, 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 it, it, it means um, mass or weight. We even use that idea... Um, as a euphemism today, is that man's worth his weight, what? In gold, right? Or he threw his weight around, right? That doesn't mean he literally threw his 200 plus pounds around. That means he, weight meaning influence. And that's this idea. When I think of doxa, uh, glory, I picture Stone Mountain. Because they tell us that Stone Mountain, if you've ever been there, is actually one, one, entire piece of granite most of which is underground and you don't see it only the the tiniest top of this giant 
piece of granite is sticking out of the ground, and that's what we call Stone Mountain. Uh, it's almost like an iceberg. There's two-thirds of that thing that's underground that is massive, right? And you look at something so massive and so weighty, that's the word glory. And it's so appropriate that Paul ends this letter on joy in Christ Jesus with this concept of glory. Interestingly enough, in verse number 19, um, Paul says, but my God shall supply all your need. But notice how he very purposely changes from the singular possessive pronoun to the plural. He says, all glory be to who? Our God. Not my God, but our God. In verse 19, he was talking about his personal experience. And in verse 20, he's talking about the corporate expression. Personal experience versus the corporate expression. This is, this is not just my God. This is our. It is He is our Father. And that reminds me of how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Now, how do we open that? How do we address the Lord in prayer? Our what? Our Father in heaven. Just make sure it's not your earthly father. Some of us had good ones. Some of us had bad earthly fathers. Some of us in between. Some of us, that story still being written. Our Father in heaven. This is how we're to address Him. This will come up on the screen, but jot it down in Romans 8, verses 15 to 17, in this idea of God being our Father. You pull that up there, Jay, if you hit that space button. There you go. For you did not receive, Paul says, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, what? Father. Abba, Father. That next verse there, Jay, if you would. The Spirit Himself, that's the Holy Spirit, by the way, when you see capital S. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's where this, so it's the Holy Spirit that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And if children, here's the good news, if children and heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with King Jesus, is what word Christ means. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. What a privilege to call God Father. And Paul says here as he wraps up in his own hand, now to our God and Father be what? Glory. Glory. How long? Forever. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. I, I was telling my class this week, and I'll never forget one of the little boys at camp. This was many years ago. Um, uh, he was asking about what's, what are we going to do in heaven? That's a, I think that's a good question. Tells me the kid's thinking. And so I told him, I said, well, you know, I said, um, heaven is going to be really just the worship of God. We're going to worship God in heaven. That's going to be the main focus of it. And he said, well, what's that mean? I said, it's kind of like church. You know, we go to church and we worship God. And he gets this horrified look on his face and tears filled his eyes. And he says to me, you mean, Pastor Paul, you mean heaven's going to be like one big church service forever and ever and ever? He was so discouraged. Right? And, and, it, and, I, and I realized I probably should have a better way of describing heaven 
to these kids. But in essence, it's, gonna, it's not going to be one giant church service forever and ever. Listen, and all this, this convicts me. Heaven's going to be what church should be like. Not the mess that we make of it. The best church experience you've ever had times 10,000 times 10,000. The best worship you've ever been a part of times a million. That's what heaven is going to be like. Because this God and Father deserves this glory forever and ever. And we're going to, listen, we're not going to have to give God the glory. We're going to get to give God the glory. And that glory just means fame, weightiness. Literally to make God, all of the fame, all of the credit, all of the glory, all of the weightiness of this amazing gifts that have been given to us through God our Father, let it all be to Him, <laughs> and we're going to get to do that forever. And He's saying to these Philippian believers, one day when I'm gone, one day when you're gone, we're going to get to reunite and we're going to get to do this the right way and we're going to get to do it forever. All of the glory puts all of the focus, all of the attention on God. And I fear today, and I'm going to move on from this, but I fear today that we have become glory sponges when God intends us to be glory mirrors. We have become sponges because we are so inward focused and self-focused that we, we soak up the glory of God. But what God intends to happen is that we reflect back the glory to God like a mirror. And by the way, you know how you get liquid out of a sponge? You squeeze it. And I think that, Mike's laughing, I think that's what God does to us sometimes, doesn't he? We soak up that glory and God says, no, that's my glory. I'm going to squeeze that out of you. Because that belongs to who? To me. The Father tells us who this glory goes to. Now, when we glorify Christ, what does Christ do with that glory? Where is he seated? Right hand of the Father. What do you think he does with that glory? He don't sponge it. He reflects it. That's his goal. That's his purpose. Jesus, the Son, reflects that glory back to the Father. The Holy Spirit directs that glory to the Son. The Son reflects that glory to the Father. <clears throat> and in that Trinity, we have this beautiful relationship. Everybody knows their role and does their part. And, and it's a picture of how our families and how the church itself should function. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Are we reflecting that glory back to God? So I see the glory. The second thing I see here in the ending is the greeting. The greeting. And don't take this too lightly. The greeting, the Bible says, and Paul says, and again, in his own hand, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me, what? They greet you. Not just me, all the guys, we're all greeting you. We're going to find out who some of those brethren are in a minute, in this very next verse. <clears throat> it says, all the saints greet you. And, and I think he's talking about the saints that he's got contact with as he's there in Rome under house arrest. So oftentimes when, when, when someone was in house arrest, you were allowed visitors. Now Paul couldn't go out to the public worship, public meetings of the churches, but the church people could come to him. The saints could come to Paul, and it looks like they did that. So he says, um, this is not just me, but all the saints greet you. Now notice this little line, but especially those who are of what? Caesar's household. Where was he? Rome. Whose headquarters were in Rome? 
Caesar. Now, it just so happens that this Caesar was literally insane. It was Nero. Um, by contracting syphilis, which is a, literally a brain-eating disease, uh, this Nero was, was literally going insane. Um, but he had a very large household. Who would, be, who would be included in Nero's household, Caesar's household? A lot of servants, right? Because I was telling our, 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 our Romans class that there's about roughly a million people. There's roughly one million people in Rome when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans about 57 A.D. Two-thirds of them were, were either poor or slaves, which became a problem later. So, so Caesar would have had a bunch of slaves or servants in his household. He also would have had soldiers, who was chained to Paul? Soldiers. What do you think Paul did with those soldiers who were stuck with him for their shift? <laughs> he shared the gospel, right? He shared the truth. And what do you think some of those soldiers did? Repented of their sin and believed the gospel. And they were part of Caesar's household. And then the news from them gets to the other people in Caesar's household. And now here, as Paul sits in prison, as he sits under house arrest, even though he can't get to Caesar, look, the gospel can get to Caesar through the people that Caesar has dealing with Paul. So Paul's just not sitting in prison having a pity party. No, Paul is sitting in prison sharing the gospel. His work didn't stop because of his circumstances. No matter what circumstance he was in, he continues to share the gospel. His work never stops. And it's working. It's effective. Caesar's household are becoming saints. That's absolutely amazing when you stop to think about it in this greeting. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And he's saying this to who? The Philippians, right? So, who's he, so in Philippi, who are they supposed to greet? Each other, right? Greet each other. What's that word mean? He says, so we're supposed to greet all the saints. Um, and this should be a normal thing. So that word greet is an interesting word in the Greek. It's, it's the word aspazomai. And you ready for this? This is literally what it means. It means to enfold in one, one's arms... And so to welcome and embrace each other. In other words, we're, it literally means to give a holy hug. That's the idea. And Paul commands it. This is in the aorist imperative. What does that mean? Aorist means this is a, this is a continual uh, command. This is something that this greet, greeting one another, should be something that is happening regularly. It's not a one-time deal. And it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It literally, it carries the idea of just do it. Don't think about it. Don't decide. Where, just do it. Give each other a holy hug in the Lord. Greet each other. And aren't we good at that as saints? And we should be good at that. Right? And that, that's a sign of affection in this greeting. And then he reminds them the gospel was even reaching people in the household of Caesar. Prison was not preventing the preaching and the declaration and the receiving of the gospel. In fact, it was promoting it. Isn't that amazing? Hey, hey, saints, how about this? 
if God can use Paul chained constantly to a Roman soldier and the gospel go forth in that situation, he can use you in your freedom every single day. How true is that? Brothers and sisters, I, I think we got a little bit of repenting to do here. We need to greet each other better, okay? But we also need to remember the gospel's powerful. Right? We talked about it in, in our D groups this morning. It's discouraging to see our children not embracing the truth of the gospel or walking away from what they at one time did embrace. It's, it's, it's disheartening, isn't it? But oh, let me tell you, don't let that cause you to doubt the power of the gospel. Power of gospel can and will turn their lives upside down for King Jesus. We must never stop believing that, especially on the hardest days. Amen? Don't stop believing the Word. And then the last thing I see in here not, is not only that we see, first of all, the glory, and then we have the greeting, but we see the grace at the very end. The grace. Here's how Paul finally and fully ends his letter. In his own handwriting, he says, The grace, the irene, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Interestingly enough, he ends it like he begins the letter. Because, yeah, in chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, Grace and peace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with grace and he ends with grace. And isn't that a picture of our whole Christian life? Amen. It starts with grace and it ends with grace. And grace is going to see us through, through all of eternity. So it might help us to understand what grace is. It is that beautiful Greek word, irene in the Greek, that literally means to heal and to bring to bring this peace, this unearned favor of God. Actually, grace is charis, but it brings about peace, which he starts with, which is the unearned favor of God that brings about the healing between a sinner and a holy God and takes the sin and transfers it to the Son. And we get his record of perfection. And, and, and we cease being called sinner, which is an identity word, and we begin being called saint. He does not open his letter saying to the sinners at Philippi. Were there sinners at Philippi? <clears throat> there was a city full of them. That's not who he's writing to. He says to the what church? Saints at Philippi who are in Christ Jesus, right? The saints, not sinners. We need to see ourselves as the way God sees us. There were plenty of sinners in Philippi. They weren't yet saints. You have two classes of people, two categories of people. In Paul's day, it was Jew and Gentile. And Paul said, no, that, that whole thing has gone away. There's one new man. Now we'll just call them sinners and saints. There's Jewish sinners and Gentile sinners. And there's Jewish saints and Gentile saints. And we need to make sure we understand the difference. The grace, the unearned favor of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We are to commend the grace, the free favor of our Master King Jesus onto and into each other. By the way, look at how he ends in the title 
in the name of Christ. The grace of our, say it with me, Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. First of all, Lord. Whenever you see that word Lord, you need to think Master. Master. He is our owner. He's a good master to have. Amen? We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. We're owned. He is the Lord. That means supreme. He is the top. He is the head. He is our master. Jesus, from the Old Testament book, same name, Joshua. Did you know that? Jesus and Joshua. And actually the Jews would not pronounce it Joshua. The way it would be pronounced in the Hebrew is Yeshua. J's were almost always a Y. They don't even really have a J. It's in a different form in the Hebrew language. Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua. The Greek translation of that is Jesus. That's why he's called Jesus today. But do we know what it means? What does Joshua, Yeshua, or Jesus, what does that name mean? Yeah, it literally means Yah is Yahweh, Jehovah God. Shua means is, is the Hebrew word for save. Jehovah saves. He is our Savior. He is our rescue. That word Savior doesn't mean anything anymore because we've been in, going to church for too long. But brothers and sisters, when we think of Jesus as our Savior, our rescuer, that tells me that I, I love the old hymn. Remember the old hymn we used to sing? I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Can anyone say amen to that? Very deeply stained within, and I was sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me. He rescued me. Now safe am I. This is our master rescuing and then Christ is another, we don't appreciate this word partially because we're not Jewish, but the word Christ is a title. We, we saw in our D groups this morning watching this disturbing video about how they are in reinterpreting the name Christ. And this guy makes a foolish statement that most people in church believe that Christ is Jesus' last name. Well, that's silly. I, my... Jack knows that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's, it's, a, it's a title word. And it literally from the Old Testament means Messiah. But that word doesn't, because we're not Jewish, doesn't mean it's, but I'll tell you what, if you were a Jew in the first century, Messiah meant something. Not so much now for us. But here's what we need to think of that word. It means anointed one. Who do you anoint? A, a king. Next year, I guess, um, Charles will be anointed as the King of England. I don't think that takes full effect till next year. But when that does, they'll have a ceremony and they will anoint him King. It means the chosen one, the, the, the Messiah. So how, how we need to look at this is saying the, the unearned favor and acceptance of our master rescuing King. That's literally what Lord Jesus Christ means. He is my master. He is the supreme. And he owns me. Isn't that great to know? 
And he's my rescuer. What does that tell me? If I was rescued, what does that tell me about my condition? I needed rescuing. I could not rescue myself. How many of you can say that's true? In your, you can't fix you. Oh, if there's one truth in this room today is that we can't fix us, right? We were, we were in need of rescuing. We were helpless and hopeless, and He rescued us. I hope that's been your... If that's not been your experience yet, He can rescue you today, right now. You don't have to wait till the end of this sermon, which is almost there, by the way. You don't have to wait. He can rescue you and will rescue you right now. Just admit that you can't help yourself. You are sinking in your sin. And that this master rescuing king is the only one that can help you. Admit it. Own it. And ask him, rescue me. Be my master, my owner. Rescue me from my sin, from myself, and from Satan himself. And then be my king. I invite your rule and reign in and over my life, not just when I'm in church on Sunday, but all of my life for the rest of my life. And it is that grace of this master rescuing king, listen, that we are supposed to commend onto and over each other in that greeting. It is the grace of God. So in closing today, I want to ask you a question. Are we, are we doing that? Are we commending the grace of God over one another? We need to do that. And I think that just involves words. It's not that hard. I think we need to be praying the glory. That glory would be to our Father for all of eternity. And we need to offer up our lives as a conduit for that glory. We need to say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen? That's why those traditions have taken place in churches. Those are good traditions because they're right out of the Bible. Hey, you fathers, I look at Joseph and Paul back here, people with young kids, grandparents with grandchildren. We need to be commending the grace of God over our grandchildren and over our children. Amen? The grace of of God, the grace of God, the grace of, the, of God be with you, of our master rescuer, King Jesus. And we need to sing the glory of God. Amen? We need to give Him glory because He is worthy. Remember, the Holy Spirit directs the glory to Christ. Christ reflects the glory to the Father. And the Father receives that glory. And you and I get to be a part of it. Would you stand with me? Um, Courtney's going to come. We are going to actually do that. I'm going to encourage you to go home and to speak the grace of our master rescuing king over your family. I want you to pray, even as I'm going to pray here now, you pray with me that God the Father would receive this glory that we're about to give him, this fame to his name. As we sing, all glory be to Christ. Father, we come to you today thanking you for King Jesus, our master rescuing king. And we pray that you would bless him today. We pray that his grace, which actually is not just a gift, a free gift, but it is also an empowerment, that his grace would empower us. 
and that we would speak that grace and commend it to other saints. And that even as we sing today, all glory be to Christ. Lord, if there is one here who has not been rescued by this master rescuing king, even as we're singing, Lord, would you draw them to your son that you might receive the glory, that we would repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus, and receive the empowerment of grace to follow him and obey him for the rest of our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name.